Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. Today, we're really excited to have a guest on. We have Jack Han, former Toronto Marlies coach. Jack, how are you? I am great. How are you? I'm good. Ian? I'm excited to have Jack on because I've always been a big fan of Jack's. I read all of his stuff back at Hockey Graphs before Kyle Dubas snagged him up. And uh, now he's back on the internet, back blogging, back doing some interesting stuff. Uh, Before we get into some of the nitty gritty, I I think an interesting uh, story to tell here is that both Jack and Rachel... Uh, we're up for the same job with the Leafs, and uh, I think there's some interesting stories there when it comes to the interview process. Rachel, do you want do you want to start us off here? Because I know you and Jack know each other pretty well because of this. Yeah, so I think Jack probably has the better Lou Lamorello interview interaction, and I definitely want to hear about it. And I think everyone is kind of curious to hear about what it's like to speak with Lou. But I think for me, I was at development camp. Uh, after the draft and I was kind of just standing by the staircase at the MasterCard Center sort of in the back where uh, it's kind of closed off to the public and I just get this tap on the shoulder and I turn around and it's Lou and all I got was good morning I am Lou Lamorello and in my brain I'm like yes I am fully aware Um, but I think what came out of my mouth was like oh good morning like I'm Rachel nice to meet you like whatever but Jack what was your experience interviewing with Lou because I spent the better part of like the entire development camp in his presence and it's intimidating okay so what what happened was um it was I think in July that um Kyle had me fly to Toronto to interview in person so so actually at at that point you know, I'm, I'm guessing you would have had the inside track because you actually were around the team and, and stuff like that. But anyway, so so Kyle has then me. Jack came in and, and stole the job. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I guess it was, it was last minute shenanigans. But um, so so what happened was um, uh, got my flight booked with Porter. Um, my first flight got delayed and then canceled. And then so I had to rebook on a later flight. And then we we were approaching Billy Bishop at uh, I want to say around ten fifty five, and then Billy Bishop closes at eleven, if memory serves. Yes. So we so so yeah, we were on final approach, and then the pilot had to pull up because there was like a crane on the runway, like they closed down for the night. So we go to Hamilton. Now it's it's past midnight. We go to Hamilton. We bust back to downtown Toronto, and, and I was. Um, the team stays at the Delta, so like team staff and stuff. So I get to the Delta, I get like four hours of sleep. I get up at 630 because I'm absolutely, you know, like I, I'm just completely nervous. And then um, I don't drink coffee, so I, I don't think I had a coffee that morning, but, but I was just kind of, you know, wired. Uh, walked to uh, what was then the ACC, but is now Scotiabank Arena. Um, you know, talk to the reception, make my way up to the 15th floor, and then... I mean, I, I was expecting to interview with Kyle because he was the only person from the Leafs organization who I had talked to up to that point. And then I, I get into the room, and then it was Kyle and Lou together. Yikes. So, <laughs> yeah, so um, 
I, I mean, the, my, my first surprise was Kyle was actually way taller and bigger in person than I thought. Like he's huge. Like, like, like he's a big guy. Like I'm six yeah. two, two hundred, and he like he had to be around my size. I, I mean, maybe he did a double take too because most Asians aren't that big. But anyway, so so I guess we're both surprised. We both we're both surprised by. by um, when people meet me in person, it's the opposite. It's like, man, I, I didn't realize you were that short. <laughs> so, so we can get to this later, but I, I actually had to spend 10 hours in a car with Ian a couple years ago. So, <laughs> oh, so we'll I get have back to that get later. this. <laughs> yes, okay. Yeah. Um, so I get there, and, and, and Lou was there, and I was completely unprepared. But I, I quickly regrouped in my head. And, um, and it was funny because... I don't even I don't even remember how it happened, but I I did some research on Lou before I went, okay, and, and it came in really handy because the first thing that we bonded on, which we bonded on immediately, was the fact that he played he was a player coach for like a lower uh, like a minor league team like a minor league baseball team in Tedford Mine, Quebec, and Tedford Mine is. Is, um, is is a small town like two hours outside of Quebec City, and that's where my girlfriend's father is from. Okay. So her like her her family's from there. So we kind of bonded over that. I think that kind of broke the ice, or at least that that made me a little bit more comfortable. And and off we went. Wow. Yeah. See, I did not have that icebreaker with him. I think I was more stunned than anything because he came in. At development camp and everyone's wearing like I was wearing a tracksuit and Daryl Belfry was wearing a tracksuit and Sheldon Keefe was wearing a tracksuit and Lou comes in in a dress shirt and dress pants and Kyle Dubas has a golf shirt on but you just knew that that it was a different level of professionalism with Lou so I, I could see how you would be a little bit startled walking in the room and, and seeing him there. It's not quite the sandals look that Brendan Shanahan's always pulling off, you know? <laughs> no. So what did Lou say to you? I want I'm curious to see if it's similar. Well, um you, you know what, like I don't remember that whole the, the whole exchange because it took about forty five minutes, but I, I will tell you the most memorable question and answer that, that happened during that uh that whole interview was um I mean, obviously, lose lose a baseball guy in addition to to a hockey guy, right? And you know, he's from what I hear, he's really close friends with the Yankees GM. Uh, is it Brian Cashman? Yeah, Brian Cashman. He was really close. He used to, I think, he used to be like the president of the Yankees or something at one point too. Like, yeah, he was yeah, 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 intertwined. Yeah. So, so and so that was the first the the, the first thing. But the second thing is. Um, Lou's actually a math guy. So Lou was a high school calculus teacher. Yes. Believe it or not. And at one point, Lou asks me what my thoughts are about war. So wins above replacement, which is a very pointed question, right? Yes. And, and, and I, was very, um, I was very impressed because, you know, I didn't expect him to ask that. Yeah, I would say the, he doesn't have the reputation of a math man. No, but, but he's um, very bright. Exactly, and so so I so I collected my thoughts, and you know I I I remembered the whole uh, high school calculus thing, and what I told him was, you know, a player's WAR metric at a certain point in time, you know, is a fairly good indication of what this player has been in the recent past, right? 
Right. And and if you do if you do a large study across many individuals, then you'll see that there's a there's a certain shape, you know, that generally tends to occur in players' careers, which is the aging curve, right? You start out not so good, then you get better, and then you gradually get worse, and then you get a lot worse, right? But so so that's kind of you know, a player's war metric at a given moment and his aging curve or the, 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 the aging curve of the population can give you some pretty good indications of what to expect. However, um, you know, that the, the second derivative of that aging curve, which is the rate of change, right? Right. That's something that you can manipulate at any given moment in the sense of, you know, is this player getting better? Is this player, get, is this player getting fitter? Is this player... You know, does this player have his life in order? Does he feel good? Does, is he able to perform? So, so for me, the, the the most fascinating thing is when you go beyond war, is how can you at any given moment maximize a player that you have, or or help him be better. And that's always the point of coaching, right? Is to get the most out of the players you have, and that's something that I know you've been doing. Uh, you did it in McGill as a coach. I know you were uh, with the Marley staff this year working as a coach. And I always find it interesting when you're trying to figure out a way to maximize players' talent using you know the coaching background, but also trying to think about it in a numbers standpoint. Going, well, we want to maximize your WAR, but how do we do that? Yeah. So I think the the way that I explained it, he was satisfied with. So so ultimately, I think that that went well. Yeah, and I think the biggest revelation of this all uh, to ev- anyone who doesn't know is that uh, Lou is probably the the quintessential hockey man when you think about it. But when you peel the layers of the onion back, he's actually very much into the math, and he might not use it in the same ways or think about it in the same fashion that the people who yell on Twitter do. But he at least considers it and has an appreciation and an understanding for how statistics can help build a team and help the team be successful, which is definitely the impression I got from him as well. Um, Rachel, do you have any interesting stories from your interview with Lou? I wouldn't say from my direct interview with Lou, but so this is kind of a Sheldon Keith Lou story. Um, There was a kid, I think it was Chibikin, came in with Yaramir Yager skates and they had the black tucks on the bottom. And first day, and we were taking bets on how quickly Bobby Hastings would have to change the skates. And lo and behold, after the first session, his skates were taken into the back and they got changed. But the funny interaction was Piero Greco and I were both wearing hoodies because uh, Jack would know this. The Marley's practice rink is extremely cold. And I was freezing cold. And I went into the kind of like eating area and we had the, the hoodies on and Lou and Sheldon Keefe came walking in and Lou turns to Sheldon and goes, hey, Sheldon, what do you think of the hoodies? And then he looks directly at me and Sheldon goes, I don't really like them. And, and Lou just goes, well, you know what we could do? And he just kind of like motions to the back of the hoodie and makes like the scissor cutting motion. And when I tell you that I could not have gotten up quicker and sprinted to the locker room to take the hoodie off, like, I am not kidding. I was Usain Bolt because that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, this, they do things very uniformly here and we will not be wearing hoodies. So that was kind of like, I guess my favorite interaction with him was just, I'll never forget it because 
just the whole the smile on his face and as he was doing the the scissor motion was it was really funny so i would say that that was more of uh less an interview and more of just kind of being around him situation was that the day you were labeled a female staffer in that one uh, article yeah that was the same day yeah good day good day day. a lot happened that day (laughs) yeah but i want to jack so you and i have both not only with the leafs but also with mcgill um our schools were actually scheduled to play each other at nationals before covid sort of took that down um now that I'm kind of involved, how do you feel that being at McGill helped kind of prepare you for that next level and helped you shape how you look at hockey? I mean, um, so so I'm 31 now. Um, I was 25 when I started working at McGill. I mean, like as as a hockey person, I was probably born at that point. Okay. So, so really, like it, it's been everything. Like it, um, you know, you, you have you have an idea of what it's like to kind of, uh, you know, put it on the line or, or give yourself to something bigger than yourself. And and that was probably the first, uh, the first time in my life I'd experienced that in, in in a sporting context, at least. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a lot different, though. Just like, I mean, you could speak to this too. The the amount of resources you have available to you at the NHL level versus at the U Sports level is just so vastly different. And even the difference between U Sports and NCAA. I know you've kind of interviewed a lot of um, players who have played in the NCAA, like the draft process. I think Nick Abruzzesi comes to mind. Um, did you did you find that you were kind of handcuffed at all working at McGill or did you kind of have what you need and you just built out from there? No. So so that was an area where, you know, they, they were looking for a video coach at the time. Like Peter Smith was a head coach. There. He was actively looking for a guy and he was even trying to talk their equipment manager into, you know, sharpening skates and then cutting video <laughs> and, you know, doing both, which which could not have worked. Um, so I kind of came in at the right time, but but to Peter's credit, he really gave me the freedom to really kind of build out things that, the way I thought it would be best. Like there was probably like a one, two months period where we were kind of you know feeling things out, but after that, I think you know we really we really trusted each other's work, and we you know not that we never had disagreements, but you know we we had that respect factor, and and for me, like he's he's bar none the biggest hockey mentor I've had. You know, three Olympic gold medals with uh, Team Canada at, at the uh, at the Olympics. Um, you know, I don't know how many provincial titles. Um, you know, several national titles. He's in terms of being a progressive thinker and also being a mentor and and being a good coach. Like, you know, I I don't know of many. You know, in, in all of hockey, as far as I'm concerned, with with his qualities. I know when I think of Jack Hahn and I think of the path that you took to working in the NHL, I think, okay, here's a guy who did some work at University of McGill doing some coaching. He did some online writing, some great stuff at Hockey Graphs, The Athletic for a little bit. And just like Rachel Dory, the second after he started working at The Athletic, he got (laughs) scooped up by an NHL team because his stuff was just too good and Kyle Dubas wanted him off the market. 
I'm curious how you take your approach to incorporating analytics and video, because I think the way that we try to do work when it comes to Rachel, when it comes to Jack Hahn, Harmon Dial, other people who I look up to and the work that they do, Allison Lucan also comes to mind. We're trying to find a way to incorporate the numbers, but also look at some of the, the things that we can see in video and going, okay, here's how we can marry the two. I feel like the work that you've done in the past as a coach or whether it's as a draft analyst or the coaching that you did at the, the Marley's level, the goal at the end of the day is how do we take the best from both sides here? Because we want to incorporate as much information as we can. What's been your approach to doing it? Because I've always respected the way that you go about it. So, so I'll so I'll use an example. It's uh, I'm looking out my window right now. It's it's pretty nice outside. It's got to be about 20 degrees, right? Or 25, sunny. And, and I always saw analytics, um, at least the the macro side of it, as kind of the temperature, right? You're taking the temperature of the room, or you're taking a temperature of outside. And you know, before you go outside, you better check the temperature so that you're prepared. And but but then you know it only gives you a vague idea of what to expect, and then you gotta consider other factors, right? Are you going to hang out with your friends? Are you going to, you know, a bar? Are you going out to a formal event? Like how you dress is really up to other factors. But before that, you gotta take the temperature, and because otherwise you'll get in trouble. Is there an example on the ice where you could apply that same logic? Well, I mean, this week I um, I collaborated with. Uh, a, a Twitter user by the name of Jay Fresh, and we kind of looked at Drew Doughty from two different angles. You know, I took the kind of the, the scouting perspective that I think I've gotten way better at in the past three years, and he he took a a, a numbers, um, an analytics perspective, looking at his war and looking at the different facets of his outputs. And I think we we both arrived at some very, you know, clear and complementary conclusions. So not only did we kind of, I think we had a good handle on how good he is or not right now, but also what, why that is and what we can do to address that. What were those conclusions for anyone who didn't read the article? Because I haven't been reading as much as I usually do right now, because obviously there isn't as much to write about in the hockey world. But that was one of my favorite articles recently because I thought it was a really smart approach to breaking down a player. Yeah, well, um, just to give you the Cliffs notes, um, Dowdy's results in terms of the, the analytics, like the, his war or his shot impacts, have not been good, right? Uh, whereas if you look at, let's say, some uh, sport logic data, or you know, if you look at what Andrew Brookshire's written about Drew Dowdy, well, he, a lot of his micro stats have held up. So he's still exiting his own. He's still passing pretty accurately. Um, so why have his numbers cratered? Well, you know, I looked at one game in particular and really drilled down on every single one of his shifts. And what I noticed is there, there, there were probably about 10 or 12 moments in the game where the effort level just wasn't there. You know, there, if if you were playing for Team Canada at the Olympics, he would make that pinch or he would stand up at the line or he would go back and retreat. Finish that check. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. Or, you know, take a hit to make a play, go and retrieve that puck or, you know, use his skills instead of sit back. Have that dog-like mentality like Rachel's background noise Exactly, right now. <laughs> yeah. My giant barking dog. But but that's the thing. So you, so you see a player and he, he's not that old and he still has all the skill sets and he can still play really well when he tries but those 10 and those 10 or 12 moments per game makes the difference between you know being an elite performer versus being a guy who's severely underachieving 
So really, when when we talk about you know players, uh, players compete level or effort or you know, I find this is a case where he legitimately has more to give, and it's I think it's legitimately uh, an issue of motivation or inspiration. And I think when you look at someone like Joe Thornton, it's similar. You look at the San Jose Sharks. I wouldn't be trying either in that situation if I'm 40 years old and my team's completely fallen apart and there's no hope. We don't even have our own first-round pick. I'm probably not going to be putting in the effort level either. So trying to make an assessment of a player based solely on numbers, yeah, he's not performing well. But why is that? And if we were able to fix certain things that are fixable, could we get different results in the future? Sometimes those are two different answers. And I think that that's why we need to try to incorporate the video a bit more in our analysis, because I've always come from the numbers side of things. But I think that if you tend to get too focused on the video sometimes, and maybe you can overlook some of the macro level data, I think that's where you need to be taking both sides into account. Yeah. So so the once again, to go back to the weather example, like it's like saying, oh, it's a nice sunny day outside. I'll wear my shorts, except it's minus 20 in the middle of January. So, so you, you might find yourself uh, very surprised. All right, so now that you've kind of finished off with the Marlies, I think this is kind of, and I don't know how much you can speak to this, but there's always these misconceptions, whether it's about Lou Lamorello or it's about Kyle Dubas or just kind of how Toronto runs. I know that you worked closely with Kyle Dubas, at least for the first two years. What is something that you maybe had a misconception about or that you think other people have misconceptions about how he runs the operation versus what actually happens behind the curtain is he different than what a lot of people make him out to be so so i did i'm gonna repeat what i told james myrtle when he interviewed me um for his uh piece on the athletic because i think we have also other things that i just want to make this as concise as possible but the way that I would say uh, Kyle is really misunderstood by people is that he, he's not just a numbers guy, right? Um, he's very, very good with people. Uh, you know, he's loyal, he's trustworthy. He has lots of those kind of um, intangible qualities that um, you wouldn't expect necessarily, um, you know, from a computer guy or a stats guy or, you know, logical, a purely logical thinker. Like, the, the biggest takeaway I had working with him is, once again, to repeat what I told James, is to be a successful person, to reach your potential, you have to be a thinking, feeling, and doing person. And you can't neglect any of those three aspects. And I think Kyle has done a better job than anyone I know of being extremely strong in those three aspects. Can I play a bit of devil's advocate here from a Leafs fan's perspective, just for fun? Because I know that I have Leafs listeners that are going to chime in and say, at some point, isn't being too nice taking it too far in contract negotiations? And this is where I have the back and forth with myself sometimes when I'm evaluating Kyle Dubas, because those things that you mentioned definitely matter. And you look at the fact that European free agents want to come sign in Toronto, whether it's Miko Lettinen, whether it's Barabanov, whether it's Zaitsev, whether you look at all the European free agents that tend to be signing the NHL, a lot of them want to come play for Toronto because of the way that Kyle Dubas has treated his players. But then at some point, if you're not getting those deals that a GM like Steve Eiserman is getting, is it worth all those benefits you're getting by being super nice to the players? That's a conversation that I always like to have. I'm curious what your opinion is on it. I mean, you know, I've, I've never been overly um, absorbed by cap implications. Um, 
you know, that that's really not where my interests lie. And for me, you know, chances are you're not going to win the cup and chances are you're never going to win the cup. So, you know, when it's all said and done, it's, you know, have you built something worthwhile and can you live with yourself? You know, the the, the, the rest you can take it and leave it. Right. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. So when you talk about kind of what makes you happy, I, I got to know, what made you realize that you want to write a book? Because you've got a book coming out. I mean, you've got the pre-sale going where people can can get the book and and just kind of it's it seems like a bit of a switch even though it's it's still hockey related but everyone knows you're a great writer so what kind of made you realize while you were working in the organization that writing a book was sort of the path that you wanted to take or what it was going to be your next step well i mean i've I've kind of known since i was six years old like that like writing was my first talent in life i'd say but you know before i knew what hockey was before i learned how to skate before everything else like i i just like reading and writing and you know finding good stories and and dreaming up stories and so so really it's just taken all this time to figure out what i wanted to write about what exactly i wanted to discuss and when it was going to happen like after I left the Leafs, you know, I, I, every, the, the book just poured out of me and I, I finished writing about 20,000 words in two weeks and, and I had time to edit it too with uh, my longtime friend and Hockey Hall of Famer, Michael Farber. So, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that it's just, it's, I would say it's almost predetermined. Like you, whenever it happens, it just happens. What's the book about for people who are interested in buying it? Because I know that uh, you've done a lot of great work in the public sphere. You're, you're a great writer. Anyone who's read your stuff sees that you know, you're a smart hockey mind who does some some interesting hockey work. What's the main purpose of the book? Because I'm a big Jack Hahn fan. I'm probably going to buy it anyways. But for other people who are you know maybe on the fence, what's, what's going to convince them that this is something they might want? I mean, my, my intention behind it is... Well, first of all, it's going to be an ebook. Unfortunately, uh, due to the current situation, I think it, it's easier and faster just to get it out in people's hands in a PDF format. But even if you can kind of overlook that, I wholeheartedly believe that it'll be the best hockey book uh, you'll read this year. Uh, so the content side of it, it's, it's six chapters, uh, six stories um, of timely um, NHL happenings, whether I'm talking about why is Montreal not making the playoffs? You know, why did Vegas change their coach? What's the difference between Crosby and Malkin? Um, you know, why is PK Subban not good anymore? So those are all timely things. But I, wa- I have to read that chapter. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> yeah. So so these are timely things that come up and that people get you know invested in. But I wanted to illustrate those concepts and and offer some explanations using you know timeless, uh, whether it's tactical or or statistical or um, you know, um, even philosophical concepts illustrated with some personal experience as well. So I really wanted the book to have a bit of something for everyone. You know, if you love hockey, if you want to really know what's going on, I think there's going to be something in there for you. Well, I can say I think Ian and I are both very excited about the book. I mean, I'm anytime there's a, a hockey book of any sort that comes out, I'm pretty much all over it. So I'm excited for for this to come out and I think that it's going to be different from just like a traditional biography so it's kind of a change of pace from all of the whether you're reading a hockey book or one of those life improvement books it's it's maybe something else where if you're into hockey uh, it's a bit of a change of pace so I would encourage everyone to pick up a copy and um, Jack's got the link 
attached to his Twitter, which you can find um, pretty easily, and we will link to it as well. So I would encourage everyone to uh, to pick up a copy. But just kind of like moving on, you had the opportunity to work with Sheldon Keefe. What makes Sheldon Keefe the right coach for the Leafs, and what makes him a good coach? Because I've heard from guys that he's coached in junior and guys that he's coached in the AHL, and what makes him such a great coach? Well, I mean, before we get there, I think I want to talk a little bit about what, for me, makes Sheldon Keefe a good person. There's a good start. Um yeah um some coaches uh aren't (laughs) well i mean many people aren't right so why why would why would any profession be any different uh when when the news came out that i was uh leaving toronto um you know sheldon reached out and and we had you know an hour-long talk about many different things um most of them not hockey and i and i first of all i really appreciated that but Another conversation which really left an impression was um, when we were driving to uh, Buffalo in preseason um, to play. I think it was like um, it was like during Marley's camp, so we were playing against uh, the Rochester Americans, or at least their preseason lineup. And and we were talking about different things in the car, and you know, I just made this offhanded comment about you know not not feeling Canadian, like. You know, I'm. I was born in China. Um, we moved to um, we moved to Montreal when I was in first grade, and and I just made this comment about, oh well, you know, people don't think I'm Canadian. And, and Sheldon turned to me and he said, why Why would you say that? For for me, you you are Canadian. And you know, as someone who who lives in a society where you know racism is present, it, it did mean quite a lot to me, especially in the sport of hockey. Yeah. I would totally agree with that. So, so, so what happens is, I think, um, w- when I was growing up, like the racism was way more overt. Like kids would actually say things to you because, you know, they're so young and immature and ignorant that, you know, they're gonna say things, right? And whatever. The stuff you hear in high school, yeah. some of it's really bad. But, but as you get older and you enter the workforce, or um, you you get you, you interact with you know more highly educated people, it, it manifests itself in more subtle ways like nobody's going to be dumb enough to come to to come up to you in your face and 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 call you a chink right nobody's going to do that okay you would hope uh, yeah you would hope yeah you would and, hope. and and i i've never encountered that after high school i would say but when there is ignorance or there is prejudice it, it happens in way more kind of subtle or insidious ways of like Oh well, you know you are not what we expected, or the the fit is not there, or you know it, it's more things of that nature. The fit is not there is used so much in hockey, is and it's a crutch. I'm I'm with you on that one. Doesn't fit our culture is often what is said. Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. So so, so uh-huh. it, it, I would say it, it's a more sophisticated way of going about it, right? And, and I think there was a question whether it's on Twitter or you know you, you guys. Um, proposed uh proposed that to me as a topic but what what i want to say is is like whenever i feel like i'm being discriminated against like i would take the high road just because it's better for me and for my family and for everybody who cares about me and for my my future aspirations to take the high road right because um kill them with kindness 
Yeah, yeah, but but also it's just it, it, there's a net positive value there for me if I take the high road and, right. and if I don't if I don't you know shoot myself in the foot, right? But you know, Jack's thinking about the expected value on that. Point. Yeah, and <laughs> um, so I just gotta do whatever it is to maximize my own utility in the future, right? But but it's like the the, the idea of uh, you know if you're a skilled player and somebody somebody takes liberties with you, you know you. You let it go because you don't want to retaliate and take a penalty, but you you take a number, right? And at some point down the road, there's going to be an opportunity for you to either take the high road again or to repay with interest. And by the time you get there, either enough time and you know things would have gone on that you know you want to take the high road, but you, but you also leave yourself the option of repaying with interest if you want to. So, so for me, that, 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 that's my philosophy on that. And I know Rachel, working as a woman in hockey, Jack, you're you know visible minority working in hockey. I, I know the Akeem Alou article is something that's come out recently, and it's on people's minds. And, I mean, it's, it's a hot-button issue. I know some people don't want to talk about it right now, but I am curious what your thoughts are on it, because I feel like it's something that's big in the sport right now. Well, um... I actually I I know Akeem Alou mostly from reading a book called um, Future Greats and Heartbreaks, and, and it was one of the better hockey books I um, I'd read. Actually, it's about I think uh, Gary Joyce, who kind of went undercover as a scout for a couple of years, and uh, he wrote extensively about um, you know the process leading to Akeem being drafted by Chicago and. Um, you know the Steve Downey incident, and you know he he kind of the, the story stops before Akeem turned pro with Rockford, but but that was, um, I mean honestly, like it, it's I identify with a lot of it. I mean I I didn't have the athletic gifts that Akeem had, but a lot of the things that were written about in the book, um, I've lived variations of that, so so I identify with him. Okay, so I think there's definitely I'm I'm really glad that we got into to this part because I think that that article brought it up and I'm hockey is absolutely not the only sport that this exists in let's be fair um it still exists in society and and that's not good so then when you have people like Sheldon Keefe who make the comment of well I look at you as a Canadian that make people feel inclusive and or included and welcome and not like they're an outsider that has to be assimilated in that's the kind of person that we want in hockey would that be correct i think so i hope so okay so then now that we we've spoken about keith and sort of and hopefully he can kind of spread the way he thinks throughout because i think that that's a really positive way and i have had nothing but great interactions with Sheldon Keefe and I I really enjoy speaking to him when I do um from a coaching perspective though now that we've kind of covered the the human side of it uh what's different that you think he will have success just in coaching or whether it be with the Leafs or elsewhere um what is what is different other than the human aspect of it because I think it's safe to say that not all people working in hockey have the same views as Sheldon Keefe sure um I think from just purely like a, I would say like a strategic or an X's and O's side of things, I, I think he's way more comfortable um, being hands off when it's helpful to be. I think he's way, he, he's very good at delegating. I think he knows what his limitations are and he's looking for outside opinions and he's looking to learn and add things to his arsenal, so to speak. 
And, and I think those are the traits that will allow him to work with you know, good players, good staff, and have good results. He's also been willing to try some uh, innovative stuff, whether it's a five-forward power play, you know, calling a timeout to get your first unit out there for twice as much time. He's done some stuff that I've watched this season. I mean, it feels weird calling it this season, considering we've been on a three-month break, basically. But since he took over, it was nice. It was, it was like a breath of fresh air just seeing him try some different things. And I think in the sport of hockey, or just frankly in professional sports, there's so much risk aversion, and it makes sense if you don't have the job security to be able to test stuff out and for it to fail, you're not going to want to do that. You know, the status quo is what keeps food on the table for you and your family, and I completely understand that. But from working with him, I guess you probably brought new ideas to him that he's tested out on the ice. That must make you feel good as someone who's trying to bring ideas to their to their boss, and at least they're, you know, giving you some some clout. They're actually saying, oh, you know what? You've, you put some thought into this. There's some research that indicates that this is a good idea. I'm going to test it out. Let's see if it works. Uh, Pierre Engvall at center. So, so that's worked out. It, it definitely worked out very well for the Marlies. And who knows, maybe it'll give the Leafs some flexibility that that's going to make the difference. Like 6'5", he can skate, he can handle the puck. Let's see if he can do it down the middle. Why not? <laughs> I remember him nearly running me over at development camp and I, I almost went flying. So that was... <laughs> I was very happy to see Pierre Engvall uh, succeed, and I was kind of wondering what made the organization give him a shot at center. So it's, it's it's nice to know that there's some collaboration in hockey, and it's not just always the head guy making the decisions, because I think a lot of time it is very autonomous, and, and there isn't a whole lot of room for different perspectives. So I think it's nice to see that at least in one or two organizations in the NHL that we're starting to to see perhaps a difference and I guess speaking of kind of innovative things you are an avid tennis player and I like tennis a lot um how would you if you were going to do it apply tennis whether it's tactics or thinking um to hockey because I mean we're in the golden age of tennis right now I don't have to tell you that but would you apply any tennis lines of thinking to hockey? And if so, how? Um, so there's a book that's been very influential throughout my life that I read when I was in high school. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis. Um, it's, uh, it's written by Timothy Galway, if memory serves. And, and basically, the, 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 um, the, the book is really, it's not just a tennis instructional. It's almost like a like a manifesto or like a philosophy. So what, what it talks about is having two distinct selves with, within a person. So there's self one who's, you know, the rational thinking, ordering person, right? It's the voice in your head that says you should do this this way. And then there's self two that's the, 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 this magical being that actually does the thing, right? If, if you think about how complex it is to hit a forehand or a serve or a backhand, you know, it's 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 self two hitting the ball, but self one trying to take control of the situation. And, and I know that um, uh, Pete Carroll um, of the Seahawks and um, Steve Kerr of um, the the Golden State Warriors. He did the, their the podcast. Golden State Warriors. I was gonna yes. say, the '90s Bulls is where I see them right <laughs> yeah. now. After watching the Jordan documentary, I, I know that they're both. Um, very uh, on board with the message that the book espouses, and and they both they're both avid readers of this book because, you know, to perform in a peak state, it's about keeping self one quiet 
and self to totally engage, right? So it's like you're talking about reaching a flow state or if you're talking about, you know, playing in the zone. Like it's all about having like a very quiet, a very still self one and then having a very active and very creative self two. I've been listening to Connor Carrick's podcast, and he brings up flow state a lot, and it's something that professional athletes, you know, Jordan in the fourth quarter of a close game at the free throw line, Tiger Woods going into the 18th hole at the Masters. It's just, if you want to be at the the top of your profession, you need to understand flow state and being in the zone. Yeah, but it's, I I would say that... um I think the importance of that book, it, it's not it, it, flow state is not only reserved for top performers and guys you see on TV. It's, it's, it's for you and me. Like it, it's a it's an absolutely critical state of being that we need to experience in order to to be our best selves. Right. And, and, and I'll give you a really crummy example, which is I like playing NHL 20 online with with my friends from whether it's Montreal or in, in the U.S. And um, I still play as a Leafs, by the way. And and I was playing with, with a friend and um, as the Leafs and we're playing we're up against two guys with the Boston Bruins so obviously that was going to be a good one we're, we're down two one in the first period and I'm thinking man like I don't think we can beat these guys like they control the puck really well and then early in the second I get a breakaway with Mitch Marner and I'm thinking okay I'm, I'm going to double deke him and just finish in the open net the guy takes the goalie and, and bowls over me at the hash marks. Does the flying poke check? I hate it when they do that. Yeah, and then and then Mitch, so so Marner loses his helmet. Like he goes like you know down in the heap. So I wait for him to kind of recover, and I track back, and and then ten seconds later I get another breakaway, and then I'm thinking, okay, this guy's probably going to try the poke check again. So I fake left, and then I see him come out, and then I go left, and I finish into an open net. Like Marner has no helmet, like. Like that's flow state. Like, you, like you think you just did something incredible, even though it's it's something completely stupid. But you feel it, and, and that's the essence of, you know, whether it's sports or being alive or being human, whatever it is. But like that, that's that, that's what it's all about. And the whole idea of the inner game of tennis is yes, this is what it's all about. And you know, the the things that self one tells you that you have to score a goal or that you have to win the game or that you have to win the cup so that you can be a dignified person is false you know as long as you are and you do then you are complete jack i'm glad that you brought up nhl 20 because i also share that passion i've been playing the nhl game since i was a kid and uh, now i'm just a very big kid and i still play it and uh, i'm on a team with dangle and uh myrtle and we've been playing a couple times a week it's like a a fun little evening thing we do sometimes just at the end of our day to kind of unwind it's like it's the one social thing I've been doing lately to help keep me going. And one thing I've noticed is that it's made me a better analyst because I'm realizing what I have to do as this one player playing this one position. I need to be in the right spot when I don't have the puck. And whenever I go back and I watch a hockey game now, I'm paying close attention to the left defenseman and saying, where is he when the puck is in that corner? Because I need to be there and I'm in the wrong spot. And I'm trying to learn positioning because, believe it or not, I was never a high-level athlete. So I'm trying to learn proper positioning as one player. It's just interesting seeing what you can apply from a video game if you play it at a high level and you play it very competitive. 
positively? What can you apply tactically? Rachel always laughs me out of the room whenever I bring this up, but you've written about this, about, hey, you can apply some stuff from NHL 20 to on-ice coaching. You just need to know what the right stuff is to look at, because if you take the wrong stuff, obviously you can walk away with some pretty poor conclusions. But you're a smart guy when it comes to tactics. I like to think that I have a, a pretty good head for the game when it comes to the tactics, and there are some things that you can take away. You wrote a great article about it. What can you learn from playing NHL 20? Okay, um, so I, I'm glad you plugged my articles because that, that's probably a good way to start. Just go on my newsletter. I've written two or three articles about some takeaways that gaming can can uh, have on, on actual hockey. Uh, the other thing is you and the Dangle Navy are ducking me by playing on the wrong platform. So if you guys... Who plays on the Xbox One? Who bought an Xbox One? I, like That's not my fault. I'm sorry. Every, <laughs> every cool person in the universe has an Xbox One. It goes PS2, then you switch to 360, and then everyone went back to the PS4. That's the natural order of... <laughs> I have neither. Okay, speaking of that, speaking of that, um, I think anyone today who dismisses the importance of gaming in terms of improving your whether it's your reactions or your pattern recognition or your iq is for me someone who denies analytics back in the early 2000s or the 2010s like if you look at you know um uh fighter pilots or formula one drivers they train in simulations they use games to prepare themselves to you know, make split second decisions with multiple multi-million dollar equipment at stake. In Germany, you actually have to do a driving simulation to get your driver's license before you're even allowed to go on the road. So yeah, so so anyone, I, I think in, in 2020, anyone who denies the importance of gaming in terms of developing, you know, vision or hockey sense or instincts, I think is is just behind the curve. It's going to happen, and it's happening now. Like, um, as a hockey player. I'm sure a lot of kids are putting in hours on NHL 20, and I think some of those kids, because of the hours that they put in, will emerge from the pandemic as, as smarter players because they're able to try things and and you know fail and then try better immediately. Like you go into practice mode, you can get a hundred reps in, a uh, hundred reps you couldn't get in the season of playing you know regular hockey, but you can get a hundred reps in in 15 minutes. Okay, so speaking of hockey sense, uh, it is not a secret that Nick Abruzzese is one of the smartest players in the Leafs system. I know you were part of his draft interview process. I know Daryl Belfry and Adam Nicholas speak extremely highly of him. What is it about Nick Abruzzese as it relates to hockey sense that makes people think he is going to be able to take uh, the next step to be able to be successful at the pro hockey level because he was an overage uh, drafted player, uh, kind of, I guess, not your traditional uh, draftee. So in your interview or just kind of in your analysis of him, what makes him stand out as having that elite level hockey sense? Okay, so so I'm not going to go too much into detail about what we actually did to come to that conclusion, but... What I would say is, you know, for him, I would kind of group him with uh, Simon Dragachinsev, SDA, also. And the only way I could kind of explain this to you is they're geniuses and they can see into the future. And when it doesn't work out, it's because they were physically not able to do it, not, not because they didn't see it. Interesting. So they, 
there are those players that they don't make the right play, they make the better play. And they see the best play. Sometimes, right. you know, you just don't have the speed or the strength, or but you see it and, and you know that it's possible. And it's almost like, you know, the, the, the quantum theory of, you know, we there's infinite parallel universes. Well, you see all of them. You know, if you ever watched a movie, um, Interstellar. Yes. You know, when, when he goes, what, forward in time or whatever it is, and you see just infinite universes, like, honestly, like, that's what it's like. You just see it. So do you think Nick Evers, as he plays professional hockey at the NHL level with some level of success? I think I, I mean, I have some reservations on, on some very specific things. I think the fact that I've discussed my reservations or, or said that I have reservations, like if he hears this, he's going to work harder to be better. So now I have no reservations. <laughs> I had a quick comment about Hockey IQ or just uh, really passing IQ in general. Steve Nash was my favorite athlete of the last 20 years when he played basketball. I loved his vision and he could see what was going to happen before it happened. And he was just playing mind games. He was playing chess, not checkers. And sometimes when I play FIFA and I'm forced to look at all the different passing options really quickly and see what's available and I'm trying to go bam bam quick passes and then I go over and I play NHL 20 all of a sudden I'm looking at different passing options that I hadn't considered before and I'm realizing hey when you look at some cross-sport tactics and you look at different ways of looking at things sometimes it can open up your mind to yeah this is the play every coach growing up in North America told me to, to make but I can make this other play cross ice that would actually open up a lot more space. And even though it's something that we don't typically think of when we're watching a hockey game, if you open up your mind and consider other possibilities, there could be a really good play here. And I, I always like that way of thinking. Are, are, are you guys averse to doing a little math right now? I'm always down to do some math. I do math all day for a living now. So, yes, hit me. Okay, so what what's two to the zeroth power? One. Okay. What's two to the first? Two? What's two to the second? Four. Four. What's two to the third? Eight. What's two to the fourth? Two to the fourth is 16. Two to the fifth? 32. 64, 128, 256, 512, 10, 24, 20, 48. I played that game on my phone before. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Okay. So the, the point that I'm making is uh, as a player, whether it's a basketball player or a soccer player or a hockey player, you know, th these are the calculations that you're making. Like for every single additional element that you're aware of in your head while you play, the game gets infinitely or not infinitely, but exponentially more complicated. So, you know, for, for a person, let's say, with poor hockey sense, he's, he's working at two to, two to the two, which is four, right? Right. If he's keeping track of the puck and then one teammate. Well, you know, there, there's, there's four other skaters with you, and then there's five skaters on the other side plus two goalies. So you can theoretically go up to two to the 12th or whatever it is. Right. Right. Which is the, the type of computing power that somebody operating at two to the two cannot even imagine so that's the difference between elite thinkers and non-elite thinkers or very mediocre thinkers is when you're mediocre you can't even fathom it and when you're elite you take it for granted okay so then i think this kind of swings into the next thing i i would like you i will give you the floor to talk about the four levels of scouting because now we've kind of gone into prospects and evaluating hockey IQ we've done some math um when you talk about the four levels of scouting kind of what does that mean to you and 
how do you approach it? Okay, so the, the, the first level is what a lot of people would say is the eye test, but really I call it not paying attention, <laughs> right? You see, a, you, you see a defenseman with 12 goals, 20 assists, 120 pims, and you're thinking, well, you know, he's got skill, he's tough, um, probably a really valuable player, you know, maybe a heart and soul guy. If he has a beard, you think that he's a leader, whatnot. <laughs> but if you're really, but, but perhaps. <laughs> But 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 you you get what I'm saying, right? It's like yes. Ed Jovanovsky or Brian McCabe or uh, whatever. I know that's why I'm growing out my beard right now in quarantine. Hashtag leadership. Yeah. So so that's the first level where you you take things at a very superficial level and you don't do a lot of critical thinking and then it's like this guy looks like he should be good, so he is good, right? Yes. The second level is now you know you're applying some critical thinking you're you're watching games you're taking down notes or you're tracking some stats you know anything that allows you to have a paper trail and what this guy's done so then you're thinking well um our 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 defenseman who who's a big bearded guy with a big slap shot well his zone exits are not very good or he doesn't defend entries very well or i find that he he struggles defending pivoting to his left and now you're starting to see things at a a second level of understanding, right? That you're not just going by appearances. Now you're at, you actually have some facts um, kind of supporting uh, your conclusions on this guy. So once you get to the second level, I would say you're probably ahead of 95% of anyone who watches hockey, right? So once again, it's, like, it's exponential. It's like a fat tail, right? Like once you get past one level, then you're way ahead. The third level is you look at this guy and you're thinking, well, um, he doesn't turn very well to the left, but that's because his elbow uh, is in the wrong place and his center of gravity is off. So we can fix that. Or he doesn't accelerate very fast because his shin angle is poor, so he doesn't have a lot of leverage when he pushes off. Or um, he doesn't make very good plays um, in transition because he catches the puck in the wrong spot on his body. So now you're, you're thinking more like a player development coach um, w- when you're thinking about, um, okay, well, these are things that we can work on with this guy, right? And now you're about, you're, you're in the top 99% of all scouts or all people watching the game. And then the fourth level is like, well, if... You know, the market values this guy at a certain level, and now you're thinking it's almost like poker, you're thinking meta games, right? It's like if the market values him, then I should pass. But if the market has gone so far the other way that it doesn't value him anymore, I should probably sign him to a contract and see what he can do. Right. And then there there's the fifth level, but I don't know what that is because I'm not that smart. But but it exists. <laughs> so so it's like anything, right? It um but yeah, like it's so, so it's if you want to be a smarter kind of hockey person, just getting past the first level is going to get you most of the way there, and then eventually you're going to find that there's you know a second, third, fourth, fifth, etc. Right, and at some point you're you get to a point where you know you have a conversation with Sheldon Keefe, who's a smart guy, and he says, "Well, you are so smart that you actually sound really stupid right now." Oh my God, that's my favorite, Jack. Do you think <laughs> that someone can be an elite level scout without having played hockey at a high level? Yes. Because I find it hard to get to level three. I find it really hard to the level three that you talked about is the the part that I've had the hardest uh, uh, part with my scouting analysis. Whenever I'm trying to break down a play, I never played at a high level. I'm not really sure where my hands are supposed to be. I'm not really sure where your shins are supposed to be. 
Is that something you just pick up over time the more you do it and the more smart people you talk to? I mean, I would even say, like, you will learn more about skating if you just watch figure skating more. Because figure skating, like, if your shin angle is not right, then you don't land, right? You land on your bum instead of on your skate blade. It's just got to be right. And it seems like every elite figure skater has that part down pat, whereas not every elite hockey player knows how to do it. And that is why you contract Barb Underhill to help you. The ones with the best edge work, man. Like, some of them uh, figure skated when they were younger. Jeff Skinner's a classic example. Yeah, but or, you know, it could be tennis, it could be basketball, it could be soccer. But a lot of the next level things you get from, you know, cross pollination. I like it. Yeah. See, I think that when we talk about scouting, I, I'm sure you've read your fair share of scouting reports at the NHL level. And as have I, and a lot of them are at level one and maybe level one and a half. Um, and I think that there's a lot of people on Twitter and just in general that are yelling and screaming and they are applying the the numbers and they think they're at level four, but realistically they're at level two. And I think that's kind of a huge discrepancy right now is we have a bunch of people making themselves out to be like they're a level four, but then you read their stuff and then you listen to a guy like Daryl Belfry speak about players and that's a whole other level of talent and ability to recognize nuance within a player. I mean, the first time he started talking about Austin Matthews with me, my jaw was on the floor for a a long period of time just because he looks at things that other people just do not see. And we're talking less than 1%. I think, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think Daryl sees things that 0.1% of people probably see. Well, I, I mean, I think I would definitely agree with him. It might be even less. I, yeah. I, I mean, at, at the worst case, he's top five in the world. At the worst case. Yeah. And, and, and I think what, what really gives me a lot of satisfaction is like when I talk with Daryl um, and sometimes we'll just kind of we have these kind of it's almost like inside jokes and, and we just get each other somehow. Yes. It's like one of the sayings that we have is um, to, to do things that make total sense. First, you have to do things which make no sense. Right. I think I heard when we when the three of us, well, Adam Nicholas was there, too. So when the four of us were on the ice together, I think I heard him say that. And he was talking about a magic carpet. And I'm like, what is going on here? But he's working on the ice with a women's hockey team who was talking about Aladdin and what is one of the biggest things in Aladdin? The magic carpet. And now he's relating hockey drills to the magic carpet and all of a sudden it's clicking and everyone's going bar down and they've got the shooting motion. And he just has this unique ability to take things that, like you said, make absolutely no sense. And then all of a sudden it makes complete sense. Yeah, so it's like that scene in in Interstellar. Like, I, I don't know what you have to be on to mentally picture that, you know, and, and, and turn it into a movie scene. But like, that's what that's what geniuses see. There is a great Steve Kerr quote about Phil Jackson, where they had this meeting and it opened up their eyes to everything and they burned something. And Steve Kerr is like, yeah, we thought he was burning something else at the other end. But <laughs> but I mean, sometimes like these unique thinkers who think outside the box and have ways of, you know, just getting the most out of people in ways that you wouldn't think of. Hey, creative thinkers in this world. That's what we're looking for right now. 
Yeah, well, you're looking for creative thinkers until you kind of realize they don't they don't fit, and then. You know, like, what do you do with somebody who's who's in the top zero point zero one percent of, you know, whatever they do? Like, they don't fit, right? If if you're looking for greatness, greatness doesn't fit. Greatness just is. It's just sometimes you have it, sometimes you don't. But when you have it, you know, just try to make the most of it because because you can't you can't recreate it. All right, I think with that, uh, we we're gonna wrap it up. Um, we just want to say again, like, thank you so much for coming on. I think we had some super important conversations today about various things in hockey. Please go ahead and plug every single thing you want to plug because people can find you on Twitter. You've got a newsletter, you've got a book, and I don't want to miss a single thing. So I am gonna let you do it. Um. I'm not going to plug anything because if what I do is any good, then you'll hear from it from someone that you trust and love. Well, there we go. All right. So Jack has a book. Jack is on Twitter and uh, Jack has a newsletter and there might be more coming. There might not be. Um, We don't know until Jack tells us. But if you haven't read any of his work and you listen to this podcast, first of all, what are you doing? Um, go find his work and read it. Ian and I interact with him on Twitter all the time. And I, even offline, really appreciate the interactions I have with Jack. So, I mean, I, I really enjoyed recording this. So thank you again for coming on because this was uh, Oh, actually, one last thing. Well, one last thing. Um, if any listener is uh, from Montreal and knows of a dog who needs a good home, uh, hit me up because my girlfriend and I are moving back to Montreal in July and we're looking to adopt. So if, if there's a dog out there who could be a, f- a friend for me, then that'd be great. Yes. My sister okay. just adopted a dog named Sarge and uh, he's he's great. He's an eight-year-old uh, big suck. I love him. <laughs> he's uh, he's nice. coming. We've done social distance uh, meetings in the backyard uh, with, with Sarge. It's been awesome. Yeah. Jack, before we get out of here, do you want to tell a quick story of the time where we thought it would be a good idea to take the ferry from Rochester to Kingston, and we realized pretty quickly that it was a terrible idea? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, well, that's what happens when you tell Google Maps to find you the shortest distance between Rochester and Toronto, <laughs> is that it, it, it tells you to take the ferry. And it, it's like, it was like 30 degrees outside and I had food poisoning and I was looking for bathrooms and it just was not a fun time. But at least, at least I got to worry about you not making it back to the car in time to catch the ferry. So, so that, was, that was really nice. That was really nice. Even that was really late, nice. I'm shocked. Yeah. <sighs> I was going to leave you there. So. And honestly, that, that would have been fair. That would have been totally fair. I would have deserved it too. But... That was one of the worst decisions uh, I, th- I think I've made in terms of like, I, th- I thought it would work. We, we Google Maps it. We said, you know what, let's do this. And terrible, terrible idea. It was, uh, it was not great. So you but would I not get recommend to spend that? Some... <laughs> hey, it's not, you know, the, the, the time there was bad, but I got to spend time with Jack Hahn and, uh, you know, we, we talked some hockey. It was, it was a good time. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, top five uh, not great decision I've made in my life is taking that ferry because man how long were we there how long were we waiting there too long yeah it was a long time on a hot sticky island where we weren't feeling great alright so I think with that we will end it we're gonna take a ferry out of this podcast and um, we'll be back next week without Jack but we wish him all the best and again thank you for coming on Um, this was great I enjoyed myself immensely Keep up the great stuff, Jack. We'll talk soon. 
Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.